Welcome to Ira's Everything Bagel, where I talk with intriguing people about everything, their passions, pursuits, and points of view. My guest, Ted Sobel, is passionate about sports, and he has made it a lifelong career as an award-winning Los Angeles radio sports reporter, anchor since 1973, including stints at KFWB and KNX. He's currently with Sports USA. Most importantly, though, he has written a book about many of the legendary sports figures he has met and simultaneously evokes memories of a Southern California lad from the 60s. The book, Touching Greatness, is available on Amazon. And for everything about Ted Sobel, go to touchinggreatness.com and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Ted Sobel Sports. And Ted, welcome to the show. Thanks, Ira. Great to be here. And uh, I'm in the mood for an everything bagel just talking to you. <laughs> exactly. You have had quite the career and... You started out originally, and I have to bring this up because it's a part of my history, too. You went to Los Angeles City College. That's correct. And, uh, you know, it's just something that if you remember back from the 60s and into the 70s, some great disc jockeys of that era in L.A., one of the one of the classic radio markets that there ever was, uh, Dave Hull, the hullabalooer, who was a big, big timer on KRLA back in the mid-60s when they were number one in the market. Dave became a friend of mine in the very early 70s, and he became a mentor, and he's the one who told me to go to L.A. City College because they had a great radio and TV department, so that really got the juices flowing from trying to get into the business in that way. Even before then, and you talk about it in your book, you grew up in Culver City, you snuck into the MGM Studios, you touch on a lot of, I would say, eateries, I like that term, eateries, yeah. that people that grew up in that era and that location no such as chefs that had the toasters on the counter and all that yeah. so you give a very evocative narrative of your growing up in a period of time in southern california have you found that that part of the book and we'll get into the larger question which is touching greatness and all these legendary sports figures but did you find that that touched a nerve with some of your readers and have they communicated to you that it's a period of time and a place that they had not necessarily forgotten about, but they've been busy with life in general. And all of a sudden, they're reading your book and they, they hear about all these, or they read about all these places again. Yeah, absolutely. I, you know, the reason I did it, it's sort of a time peak where if people didn't live in our city at the time, just give them a little flavor, literally, of what it was like in some of my favorite foods and restaurants and places that are long gone, but in my mind, should never be forgotten because they, they really were special of that era and it was a classic era and then for those who did live it you know it's just reminiscing and a lot of times you can literally i try to get it so when you read a sentence you could almost taste whatever the hell i'm talking about at the time you know you because it, it comes back it's it's a it was a special time to me and i'm sure you have your favorites from that time as well yeah including pink's hot dogs well, they're, well, it's still there. Of course, yes. <laughs> that one, that one stays forever. But and I'm sure people listening who have not are not part of that time or that culture will still get a sense of what it was like. And I think that's the important thing. It's not just to evoke memories of people that lived it, but it's to give a sense of time and place to the rest of your book, which is about touching greatness, meaning meeting and interacting with legendary sports figures. But even before that, you mentioned Dave Hall. You mentioned LACC, Los Angeles City College. How did you meet Dave Hull, who then recommended that you go to LACC? Well, if I remember correctly, in the late 60s, first of all, I, I was a huge fan of his, okay, in the middle 60s. 
I would literally run home every day from from elementary school because he started at three o'clock, and I wanted to get home as soon as possible and hear him on KRLA, correct? Exactly, and it was something about his voice and others' voices that got me wanting to get into this business. There was, I don't even remember, one of the first I remember was Bob Crane. And people remember Bob Crane from Hogan's Heroes. Well, he was the morning guy on KNX when I was a little kid. And I was at my buddy's house on a regular basis, and his parents would listen to that show every day. And I was sort of mesmerized by his voice. He was talking subjects I didn't understand yet. I was too young. But it didn't matter what he said. It was sort of like, wow, what is that voice on the radio that has me feeling different stuff? And I love it, right? So the same thing happened with Dave Hall. Dave had a phenomenal sense of humor. He had a very different way about doing his show. And I got caught up into that. And I thought, well, gee, maybe I'll be a disc jockey someday like those guys. I actually, at L.A. City College, I was training to be, and I wasn't very good at it. So that was the end of that idea. But it's it's really hard. I mean, you think of. I mean, I love music. I love the business. I love and I and I had a, a a great sense of what greatness was from the '60s, from Boss Radio and KRLA. Just the the best of the best were there, but I couldn't do it, and it was really hard. Now you didn't answer my question though, so I'm going to come back to it, which is how did you end up meeting Dave Hall in person? Okay, so in the late '60s, Dave was on KFI. And that was the Dodgers station. Okay, so he did a show that was a late night show, and it always followed Dodger broadcast. So he did the first unofficial Dodger talk because he was on the air after a game. So he and he loved baseball. So he was a coach. I think it was in high school. He, he did a lot of a lot of baseball coaching as as an adult. So I got caught up into listening to Dave talking about the Dodgers, who I loved growing up as well. And so I started calling the station and asking questions here and there and blah, blah, blah. And before you know it, we met and we hit it off and he would invite me into the station because I was so curious about what's it like in there, pushing all those buttons and uh, how are you doing this? It just, you know, it was unbelievable to me to, to be inside a radio station, especially KFI, that's a 50,000 watt station and very well known throughout the country because when I lived in Madison, Wisconsin, I used to hear it at midnight. You know, that kind of a thing. So Dave invited me there, and he's the one who suggested go to LACC or Pasadena because they have the best radio departments. And I went to L.A. because it was closer to home, and it worked out. One of the themes of your book seems to be that you are able to get access to people and meet people to the point where you're a relatively young guy, and yet all of a sudden you're covering events that you want press credentials for. And you talk about that in your book, that the general manager of a team didn't really want to give you information about the team because you guys were just students. You weren't really full-time professional sports reporters. And yet, there you are. Yeah, that was the PR director, actually, of the uh, LA Kings. I stand corrected, yes. Yes, the PR. He he used to hold his programs and his media notes under his arm like a football, literally. Like, cradle it under his arm – and rolled him up. If you remember, John Wooden was famous for rolling up the roster in his hand. He always walk around with that in his hand. He used to put it under his arm, almost as if you try and knock that out. It's not gonna. It, I, it's a football, and you're not gonna. I'm not fumbling this stuff to you guys who are in school who shouldn't be here in the first place. So it was. It was actually pretty funny, and we sort of laughed at it. 
and I didn't like the guy for a long time. We've become friends since, and he, he gave me a little something that I put in the book, which is really funny, because he talked about how me and my buddy Paul Olden, who's now the New York Yankees public address announcer, we were both at L.A. City College together, and when we went to Kings or Lakers games, they didn't want us in the press box. It's like, no, 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 you're just students. What the hell are you doing in here? It's like, yeah, we're students, but you know what? This place is half full. Nobody cares. And we just want to practice our play-by-play. We almost became a part of the organization in the weirdest way because we were there every single night. Well, you were following your passion, which is why I wanted to have you on the show. And part of your story really is about your family. And that struck me as part of the overall narrative. And it's an important part of it because it was your family. It's not so much that they were supportive of you, but they were an important part of your life. And yeah. it, they did obviously allow you to, or at least you you had that interest and that passion to start connecting with all these different people. And your your dad and your mom were part of that. And you talk about it in, in your book as well. How, from your point of view, would you have pursued the avenues that you did without that type of family structure? Well, you know, it's tough to say that because I was only in that family structure. But I can tell you that my father and the first line in the book is my dad whispered in my ear, it's who you know, kid. That's the first line in my book. And, you know, my father and you're in Las Vegas and he knew Jack and Trotter who basically ran the Sands Hotel and brought all the Rat Pack and all the big names there in the 60s. That was what my father was about. And he wasn't a kiss-ass type, but he was just, he wanted to know everybody because he used to say, you know, if you're not the most well-read person in the world, if you know the right people, you're going to get just as far. And that truth to that. So I sort of, that was ingrained to me ever since I can remember. So I think a lot of that was a huge part of, you know, not just touching greatness, being around people that were influential in whatever part of life, whether it was sports or, you know, your professors or that kind of a thing. If you were the one in the back of the room, never said anything and you never met any of these people, you're starting from a tougher position to get successful than maybe somebody who isn't. Yeah, no, that's a good piece of advice. The other part about your book that makes it interesting is the number of photos that you have in there. And it's almost a validation of what you're writing about in that here are all these legendary sports figures, and it's from all kinds of sports. When you first connected with one of those legendary sports figures, what was your reaction at the time? In other words, you, you've met so many over the years, and you've reported on them, and you've done all this throughout your career, but when it first happened, whoever that person was and when it happened, what was your reaction, and did it sustain over subsequent personalities that you interacted with? Actually, no, but I can tell you that my favorite story about that subject is my first interview, which I talk about in the book, was with the best basketball player at the time, and it was Elgin Baylor. So Elgin Baylor was somebody who I stalked with air quotes in a nice way. I found when I was at Fairfax High School in L.A., I learned, and I was on the basketball team, on the C&B basketball team, not good enough for Barson. <laughs> uh, anyway, so they were telling me, oh, you moved into El Haber, and he was my favorite player growing up by far in basketball. So what I did was I spent the next few months trying to find out where the hell he lived because I just wanted to walk up and meet him and shake his hand and you know, just like anybody else, he's your favorite player. You'd like to meet him. Are you sure that? Are you sure those air quotes were true? 
Yeah, no, they were true. Okay. I, I wasn't going to do it. There was no negativity. There. Just, I just want to meet you, Elgin. Gotcha. Anyway, the whole story is, is in a chapter in the book on how I walked up to his house and knocked on his door, and his, his wife, uh, his first wife, Ruby, answered the door and said, uh, well, he's taking a nap right now. This is 1968, so he was still very much, you know, in the in the uh, still an all-star, although the latter stage of his career, and Finally, she said, if you come back tomorrow, they'll be very happy to meet you about this same time. And I said, oh, that's exactly what I, I had that look like. Oh, well, I'll be here. I promise you. That's not a not a problem. So I showed up the next day and she, she answered the door and she said one minute. and clo- I'll never forget. She closed the door all the way. And my heart was pounding so strongly. I, I say, if I was my age then now. I would have keeled over in seconds. I don't know. I, I would, I, I've never felt so nervous in my life. And he answered the door. He, the door opened, and there he was. And I looked way up in the sky at six foot five Elgin. And he looked down and he goes, Hi, I'm Elgin. And I looked at him like, No, no crap. <laughs> I never would have guessed. But anyway, he was very nice. He, he invited me into his house, and we immediately walked into his trophy room, and he showed me. He had an armoire full of all these MVP things from college and the Lakers and all kinds of great stuff. And I, I could have died and gone to heaven, just lived there until my last breath. I would have been a happy for about 15 minutes. And I left. Well, I come back maybe uh, uh, about a few weeks later. They end up inviting me after I asked. They invited me to go to a game with them. And it became a semi-regular thing. So here I was going to games with Elgin Baylor during his playing days, and it was just, it was unbelievable. And how, actually, how old were you? They invited me to go. Ted, I how, was, uh, how old were you then? 16. Amazing. 16, mostly. Yeah. yeah. So, and, and here I was. When I went back to school, you know, I, I'm not the kind of kid to boast. I don't, I don't like kids like that. But I'm on the basketball team. I got to tell the guys, hey, I'm going to the Laker game with Elgin tonight. And they would look at me like I was insane. Of course, you were making it up. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) I mean, now, if you imagine a 16-year-old kid saying, yeah, I go to the games occasionally. LeBron takes me to the games with him. It's like, no, that that doesn't happen. You know, there's there's a sports term for that, Ted. It's called chutzpah. Yes. Well, anyway, the bottom line for your question is the first player I ever interviewed one-on-one was Elgin Baylor in his trophy room. And I still have that. It's posted online somewhere, and it's going to be in my audio book. And it's really funny. I sound like I'm about five years old. You can hear how nervous I was talking to him, even though I knew him fairly well then. I never held a microphone in my mouth ever and i'm trying to learn how to be a broadcaster and here's the best pound for pound nba player giving me a one-on-one interview this was just after he retired and it was just phenomenal so you talk about looking up to somebody that was obviously huge but after that after i was in locker rooms and wherever at golf courses and you know every sport I didn't get caught up into that. I had a job to do. I mean, obviously, the better player you were early on, the more impressed I was. But that pretty quickly went away when you realize they're only people. And some, and a lot of them have some major flaws. So after a while, it was like, nah, I don't look up to you. Just give me my 15-second sound <laughs> Did your dad, during this time, was it touching greatness secondhand in that he saw what his son was doing broadcasting, interviewing, 
making connections with some of these legendary sports figures. Did he get a kick out of that? Well, unfortunately, my dad died when I was 19 and a half. Mm. So he never got a part of my career. I was in my first semester at LACC when he died. And he died at 55. So it was way too soon. And actually, today's his birthday of all, of all things. It would have been his 104th birthday. So, um, I, I can only say that that book was probably written more for him than it was for me. He's mentioned throughout it how he was an inspiration in many ways. But passion is the key word that you continue to use. And I can't tell you how many times that word is in the book. And that is all driven by what my father taught me. My mother as well, but specifically my father. Did your mother get a kick out of your career? Oh, absolutely. As a matter of fact, she lived in Las Vegas the last 30 years of her life. And every time I would come to Vegas for between 1995 and 2000, I was the play-by-play guy for the International Hockey League Long Beach Ice Dogs. And we played a team called the Las Vegas Thunder that played at the Thomas and Mack Center. So when they came, my mother occasionally would come to games and she would sit in the row behind me in the press box and she would cheer like she's a 15-year-old kid who grew up in Vegas. And I sometimes, I would turn around like, that's my mother. I can't believe she's she's a crazy hockey fan in, the, in her 80s. You know, it, was, <laughs> it was unbelievable. But uh, yeah, so that was fun. And then she used to tell me, oh, if your father could see you now. Like, well, that's great to get that feedback from yeah, your mom. Yeah, that was great. That yeah. was special. When you started your career full-time, did you think you were going to be in sports broadcasting as long as you have been, you're still obviously active. So did you think it was going to be a 10-year run and then you would go do something else? No, you know what? I don't think I ever really, because I did so many other things before I got into radio, different sales jobs just to make ends meet. Because as I told you, my dad was gone before I was 20. So I literally had to leave LA City College about a year and a half later. I did not graduate because I had to get a job. I, I, I couldn't go to school anymore. To help pay for the bills. So, no, nah, you know, I was just tired of that. I, I wanted to figure out a way to keep this career going. And radio is sort of like, uh, we used to compare it to acting. You know, it's an unstable business. There's no guarantee you're going to, you know, if, if a radio station changes format, you can be the greatest announcer of all time. doesn't matter. They don't need you anymore. And that's happened to me a few times. So in that respect, I just, I, I never really thought, what am I going to do 30 years from now? It was more like 30 minutes from now. You know, and as long as it lasted, great. And here I am still doing network sports on Sports USA. We do NFL games. I know we're on in Vegas all the time, and uh, my brother gets to listen to the games. He's there, and it's a kick. I still love being a part of it. What is it about that gives you that kick after all these decades? Is it the action? Is it the personalities and the action? Is it just your perception of what's going on? What gives you that, that passion and delight? about covering sports? Because it's not international relations, it's not war, or maybe it is war in another way. (laughs) But there's something about what you do, that passion, when you are covering sports, what is it about? I'm just interested from that point of view. Everybody's, not everybody, but most people are passionate about something. You're, You're not passionate from the point of view of a fan, you're passionate from the point of view of a professional broadcaster and reporter. So what is it that inside of you that gives you that delight and still gives you that delight? Because you cl- clearly you wrote the book about it, so there's something yeah. about it. Yeah, well, it's, it's being involved with the best. 
you know, whatever that is, it doesn't have to be sports. It could be my dad made dresses for a living. You know, if you're around the best zipper maker, you probably like whatever they do, you know. So, and that's what I grew up with. So to me, it was, it's just sports is like, is, is like a daily drama. You know, you never know what you're going to get out of it. Every game is different. Every time you thought you've seen it all, another game, something else comes up. So there's always something new, and it's just—it's so much fun to be involved. And the key word is fun. I have fun doing it. You know, most people don't have fun in their careers. They just do it because they have to do it. And that's been the case for me many times as well. But I'm very lucky that I'm involved in something I enjoy. And so I was like, why wouldn't I want to do this? I hope I can do it till my last breath. Hopefully that last breath is not on the air. It's way off. Yeah, no, it's, it's all way off into the future. <laughs> but even, even when it's off, you know, I don't want to have that last breath on the air. You can't edit that out if it's live. <laughs> right. You know what I mean? Yeah, and there's no delay in that situation. Exactly. I need I need a 12-second delay more than <laughs> And in your book, you, you have these fun facts, too, so it all ties yeah. in. You just said something that's actually very profound, and that is that I was overdue, by the way, but go ahead. No, you're right, but you, you you made it in time. There's an old slogan that I quote occasionally, and I forget who said it, but I remember the slogan. And it, I'll paraphrase because I'm already forgetting the first part of it, but here's what it is. Enjoy what you do because you're a long time dead. Okay. So in other words, while you're alive, enjoy what you're doing. And you clearly are enjoying what you're doing. Now, here's the second part of that. And, I, and I'm in a, in a similar boat in that I agree with you in terms of if you're being around people who are craftsmen or are the best at what they do, and whether it's a zipper maker, sports figure, business person, political leader, it doesn't matter. And it's to your title of your book, Touching Greatness. You almost sense that, okay, I'm not great, but boy, I've been able to be around and touch greatness. Absolutely. So, and so there's that human element that says... Okay, I acknowledge to myself and to others, I'm not the greatest person in the world in any field known to man or woman, but I've been able to associate with, to talk to, to get them on now digital recorders as opposed to the old audio tapes or film even or tape. But the point is, I'm able to have a documentation of touching and being with greatness, even though I'm not necessarily a great person myself, there's something voyeuristic in a way about it, but it, it's what drives a lot of us in broadcasting and in other fields, doesn't it? Well, if it didn't, I think there's something missing. You know, to me, it's like, why wouldn't you want to be around the best? Are, are you intimidated by the best? Some you know, people like that, are. Yeah, yeah, some yeah, people and, are. That's sad. Yeah. I mean, to, to me, it's like, I want to be around the best. Maybe I'll learn something. If not, maybe, you know, something will rub off or I mean, you, confidence is what life, if you don't have confidence, what the hell are you doing in life? You know, whatever it is. So I, the first story I talk about in my introduction in Touching Greatness is about when I was literally Teddy Sobel and my father took me to a Sears store in Hollywood, right? Which I ended up working in when I was in high school. And I'm in that Sears store to meet Ted Williams. He had just retired. It was about 1961-ish, okay? And he was a big, he just signed this huge deal with Sears. Everything was Ted Williams, everything. You know, not just baseball stuff. There were Ted Williams footballs. There were Ted Williams, you know, fishing gear because he was a big outdoorsman type of stuff. And Ted Williams barbecues. Everything was Ted Williams and Sears for about, I don't know, five years, whatever it was. So 
my dad took me there and I'm in little league and very young. I was probably about, I don't know, maybe eight years old at the time, seven or eight. So he took me and says, I want you to meet Ted Williams. He was just doing a signing thing and we got there late and I think it was like he was going to be there till noon or something. And we got there right at noon. And as we're walking through the department, Ted Williams is standing up and I see him off in the, the far side. And he said, my dad says something like, oh, wow, I think he's leaving. So my dad, who was on the heavy side, hustled. I never seen him hustle like that before. <laughs> you know, I thought it was a, I thought it was a whole new career there. You know. Anyway, he, he hustled over in the corner and he stopped him. And then I was right behind him. And he said, and literally Ted Williams was walking out and he stopped him. He said, excuse me, Mr. Williams, but my son, Teddy, would like to meet you. And he stopped and he looked down at me and he stuck his hand out and I shook his hand. And he says, oh, Teddy, it's nice to meet you. Another Teddy ball game. And he walked away. Now, he wasn't being rude. He was, he was leaving. Right. I didn't get his autograph. I didn't get anything. I was 10 seconds in interaction with Ted Williams. First time I was ever, you know, somebody that I sort of knew because I, I didn't follow his career. I was too young. But I remember he had a home run in his last at bat, and I was probably six, seven years old at the time, right? So I looked up at my dad. I was like, wow, that's unbelievable. You know, I just shook his hand. I, that was enough for me. That is literally touching greatness. And I said that there was a feeling about that. Say, you know what? I don't mind Joe Smith down the street, but I'd rather meet Ted Williams. And there was something special about that. It's like, I need to do this more often. And that's what my whole damn book is about <laughs> the rest of my life. Before I let you go, why did you decide to write the book? Because you have this interesting career meeting all these different people. And I'm sure a lot of people are thinking, boy, he got to meet this guy and this guy and this guy and this guy. What made you decide to put it all down as a book? In other words, were you looking to trying to give, again, to the beginning of our conversation, a sense of place and time and also of these people? Or was there something more personal as a decision to write the book? Well, really, it was a little bit of all of the above. Just the fact that so many people throughout the decades, I've told the Ted Williams story. I have a Joe DiMaggio story. I snuck into Dodger Stadium, and he was downstairs sitting in his underwear. And I say, I'm probably the only person, <laughs> including Marilyn Monroe, that ever got Joe DiMaggio's autograph in his underwear, <laughs> right? That kind of stuff. You know, I got a lot of fun stories in the book. To me, people used to say, well, you got a story about everybody. You should write a book someday. Now, this has been going on for decades. So in the early 2000s, whatever reason, I don't remember, but I started making notes literally on just an eight and a half by 11 blank sheet of white paper. And I would scribble little notes, just something to remember. And I put it in the file and in the drawer and forget about it. And I think of something else and I'd add it. And I look back, and I got several pages of scribbles of hieroglyphics all throughout the damn thing and trying to figure out what the hell I wrote. That was my original thing. But it was from people telling me, Ted, you got to write a book someday, because every time I mention this guy, David Jansen, David, remember the fugitive David Jansen in the 60s, yes, a great course. TV show, right? right? And he went to our school. He's a Fairfax high grad. I don't know if you might know that or not. But uh, David Jansen, I had a, a fun interaction with him. My father, who was at the Friars Club, he was the card room president. He used to tell me, Ted, you're not allowed in here. So go hide in the uh, go hide in the uh, in the spa where nobody will see you, and I'm going to be here for an hour or whatever. You you said, now, what kind of a teenager wants to sit in a spa? You know, I mean, it, it, you hate that, right? In a, in a hot room. So I'm sitting in there, and all of a sudden the door opens, and David Jansen walks in. 
And this was right after the fugitive had just ended. And I walk, I looked up and I go, oh, this is where you hide out. If you remember the, that show, right? right? And he started laughing. And we had him talking for like a half hour, sitting there just reading our paper with the towels wrapped around us in this. In this. <laughs> so I, I got a story about everybody. So that's why I did that. But, you know, I got a chapter on Tiger Woods covering his entire career and Kobe Bryant covering his entire career. And just a lot of fun stuff from a sports. And then there's the Vegas angle as well, you know, being around the Rat Pack when I was a kid and at the Sands Hotel in the early days. So I got a story about everybody. What can I tell you? That's a great way to leave it. My guest has been Ted Sobel. He's author of Touching Greatness, and it's available on Amazon. For everything about Ted Sobel, go to touchinggreatness.com, and you can follow him on Twitter and Instagram at Ted Sobel Sports. Ted, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, Ira. I enjoyed every minute. Same here. And join us every Thursday for a new schmear on Ira's Everything Bagel.